Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode, we visit with Joel Burkett, author of Amid Rage, an environmental legal thriller and the second in the Mike Jacobs series. Mike Jacobs is an environmental prosecutor with Pennsylvania's environmental agency, DEP, D-E-P, and finds himself caught in the middle of a mine permit battle between a psychotic coal mine operator and cynical neighbors with an anti-mining agenda. With offers from both sides and political bosses, Mike must find the courage to do what is right. Steve Barry, the New York Times number one international best-selling author of the Cotton Malone series, had this to say about the book. Joel Burkett's writing is tight and clean, gritty, tough, poignant. A mid-rage tells a good story in a way every thriller officiato will appreciate. Well done. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlotteriespodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Joel, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Landis. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. That's a nice little... uh, Nice little... uh, Blurb there from Steve Barry. Yeah, I, I was very, uh, very gratified and pleased that he did that for me. Yeah, that's great. Now, you know, Joel, before we get into the book, before we get into you a little bit, we got to get this lawyer thing out of the way because I have, you know, <laughs> I, I'm a lawyer. I'm, I'm a recovering trial lawyer here, and I have I've had lawyers on the show before who've written books, but uh, you know, when you're not writing books, unlike some lawyers I've had on the show, you are an environmental lawyer. You know, you were selected as the 2019 Lawyer of the Year in Environmental Litigation. You have all the super lawyer and best lawyer designations. You were selected the Pennsylvania Bar Association's recipient of its annual award in environmental law. So, you know, 
Here's the question. Most of these lawyers who come on the show, you know, they're, they're really glad to move on from the practice of law and to focus really on writing. You know, I've had, of course, I've had John Hart and uh, David Baldacci, and they, they see law in the rearview mirror. Others retire and they go to, to writing a little bit like I'm doing. What's your explanation and what's your future plans? Well, um, I started writing uh, when I was really immersed in the practice of law about uh, 14, 15 years ago. That's when I got serious about it. And I had a day job where they sort of expected me to do uh, law during the day. I can't, believe, I can't believe that. you know. I mean, so unreasonable, so unreasonable. Yeah. <laughs> and so I wouldn't start writing until about eight or nine o'clock at night. And then I'd go up to the room where I'm sitting right now. And I would uh, come up here for about two or three hours. I'd get a second win and I'd write. And I uh, actually wrote maybe uh, five or six novels that way, uh, doing it basically at night um, on my own time. And uh, um, I I planned on doing that for a long time to come. Uh, unfortunately, uh, about two years ago, I came down with an eye disease uh, called non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. And you know, whenever a disease has a lot of words in it, that's not mm. a good thing. Basically, it's... Um, blood clots at the back of my eyeball, which caused me to lose uh, some of my vision and made me now legally blind. So two years ago, two and a half years ago now, I had to retire from the practice of law. But really unexpectedly, I was not I was not ready to retire. I was still enjoying it. I, I liked being an environmental lawyer. It was what I always wanted to do. And, um, you know, so when I was practicing, you know, the, the writing was something that I fit in at nights and on weekends. And uh, now that I'm not practicing, I'm able to spend all day long uh, working on my books and writing. Well, I'm sorry about uh, the, the eye disease, but uh, in terms of being able to go from the practice of law to spending this time on your passion, I'm sure you're really enjoying that. Well, that is, I'll tell you, that is something that I'm grateful for. I mean, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I've got a yard-wide ultra-high-definition monitor. I can use a screen. I can blow up the uh, print. I can. I, I need wide print more than high print. So I, I can use um, Arial Black is my favorite uh, font, and I can use that. And uh, and also I use a lot. I, I use Dragon Dictation software, which really helps me a lot. Um, but uh, somebody's got to talk to our friend Bill Gates because there's certain things you can blow up on your monitor and, and that Microsoft lets you blow up. Other things, they, they just won't let you blow up at all. So those things, I get my exercise that way. I'm standing up and putting my nose next to my monitor and I get to use, get some exercise that way. But yeah, so it's, you know, the, the silver lining is that I'm able to write even though I'm legally blind. Yeah, well, not to leave this topic of being a lawyer and a writer just yet, because uh, even when you're writing and practicing law together, um, you know, you're an environmental lawyer. Um, you're probably, um, you know, representing some uh, some clients uh, who you're now making uh, sort of fun of <laughs> with, with some of your legal thrillers here. Uh, what did your colleagues think when you first mentioned the idea that you're going to start writing novels? Well, um, I, I think... You know, I, I can't begin to tell you how many said, oh, I always wanted to write a novel <laughs> yeah. or I started a novel and I've got five pages written. And yeah. uh, so I heard quite a few, quite a bit of that. And actually, I probably didn't tell anybody for the first few years anyway. I mean, it was it's all, you know, for the first 12 years or so that I was doing it, it was it was really just completely a hobby and something I did at night and on weekends. I, I didn't play golf, which was very helpful because mm, I, yeah. my golf time was devoted to writing. Um, but, you know, and then when they heard that I was writing, they thought that was kind of cool. And then when the first book came out, they said, oh, you're really serious about this, aren't you? Uh, yeah. And, and that's, uh, that's sort of my experience as well. I was still practicing law in my mid-50s. And 
wrote my first book, but didn't tell people about it because you know you never know where it's going to go, right? Right. And so, so you want to get you want to you want to get it out there and get it published first. Um, but switching a minute to your writing resume, it's very strong. You've you've gotten a number of awards: uh, uh, Pen Writer, Screen Craft, New York Books Festival, Reader's Favorite Awards. Uh, and listeners, we're going to be uh, just to tease this out a minute uh, after we finish this episode. Joel and I are going to go over to our Patreon channel. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, this question. Uh, so you want to write a novel? And he's had a lot of people asking that question. And we're going to we're going to talk about that. But but Joel, your your you know your books, um, not not the first two, but the books you sort of settled into now. This uh, these legal thrillers. Your first book, Drank to Every Beast, a legal thriller about midnight dumping. Strange Fire, your third book, is about fracking. The one we're going to talk about today is about surface coal mining. And I'm just wondering, are you going to run out of ways for companies to destroy the environment with, with your legal thriller series? <laughs> well, uh, sadly, no. Uh, there yeah. are many, many ways to uh, destroy the environment. Um, my, uh, uh, I've got a novel that I've started and that someday I, I'll finish, uh, which is on um, destruction of wetlands. I've got another one, which is uh, about the destruction of water supplies. And uh, there's there's always something in the headlines giving me ideas about what I can write about. And let me also say quickly, I don't write about any clients. That's for sure. Yeah, we got to get that legal disclaimer and somebody might be listening, right? That's right. <laughs> I hope. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you've got uh, j- just when did you finally figure out that you were settling in on the right uh stories for Joel Burkett. That is, you, you talked about these first couple of novels, you know, but you don't, you said you put them in a drawer or something, and then you finally settled on what you're doing now. When did it, when did it click with you that that's what you should be doing? You know, I started writing short stories about, um, about 14 years ago, and I was way up in Northern Maine in a town called Lubeck, Maine. Uh, a family friend of ours has a house way up there, and it's so far north you're really the only um, cell phone reception that you can get up there is from Canada. There's no good cell phone respect reception up there. So we went up there. We did what we had to do to open the house for the weekend. Uh, that took about a half a day. And we, were, we were we were about a hundred miles from nowhere, and um, I couldn't get any reception on my cell phone or on my uh, laptop. So I, I had some stories in my head that I wanted to write, and I started to write these stories down and. Um, it was something I'd wanted to do for a long time. I think I wrote two stories that week. And then uh, for the next year, I spent time just writing short stories. I bumped into a good friend of mine, another lawyer, and he said, oh, so how's your novel coming along? This is after about a year of writing short stories. And I said, I'm not writing a novel. And he said, why not? <laughs> and I said, that's a good point. Why not? So I went home and I started writing a novel. I didn't know anything at all about it, but I started writing a novel. And my first novel was about the 1950 Phillies. Uh, the Whiz Kids, and um, that was a that was a lot of fun to write. I did a lot of research. I put my legal talents to work, and I did research like I was researching a, a brief. And um, but at the end of writing that, I realized it was too long and too amateurish, and and too many rookie errors. And um, I, I that that novel is in the drawer, as they say. But I, I wanted to write stories about environmental legal issues. I, I'm a fan of John Grisham's, and he's written three environmental legal thrillers. Um, the Appeal, The Pelican Brief, and Gray's Mountain. Great novels, great stories. But I thought, well, you know, he knows all about practicing law and he can write a pretty good story about it or 
pretty good scene about a courtroom, but he really didn't know as much about environmental issues as I do. And I thought, I, I think I can beat him on that. So I, I put my talents to work and wrote uh, three novels now on environmental legal issues. And I've written some other novels as well. So um, I'm not just locking myself into this genre. So Joel, that's an interesting point. I really, by the way, I really did enjoy the book and, and I was attracted to it because, uh, you know, of course, being a lawyer, I like legal thrillers, but I had never really uh, seen a lawyer uh, novelist who sort of specialized in writing, you know, the environmental legal thriller. And then when I looked at your resume, I said, okay, this guy's going to know what he's talking about. This will be interesting. Uh, and you're right in that respect. You bring that to it. But how much, how much, uh, when you're writing these, Joel, does your editor say, now, Joel, I know you know all this stuff. We don't need to put all this stuff in the book. You know, we don't need to tell them everything about how fracking works or how surface coal mining works. You know, you have to play that. It's kind of a game you got to play there, right? How much is too much? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, the person who um, really set the bar for us is a man named Tom Clancy. Mm -hmm. And when Clancy wrote The Hunt for Red October, we all learned something, a thing or two about submarines, probably a lot more about submarines than we ever wanted to learn. And, um, but he showed us how you could write a novel that's a thriller and at the same time has a lot of technical stuff in it. I mean, people just love that book and loved it and love it today. And it was a great book, uh, The Hunt for Red October. And his other books were similar in the sense that, you know, they took technical things and they wove them into the story. The one thing I was worried about, though, is that so much of environmental law is tedious mm -hmm. administrative mm -hmm. regulations, page after page after page. And so I, I, what I really wanted to do was to avoid um, boring my audience. I want to teach them something. I want them to learn something about strip mining. I want them to learn about uh, midnight dumping and hazardous chemicals. I want them to learn about fracking. But I didn't want to bore anybody. And, I, and I, the other thing, too, is uh, you had mentioned um, you know, my clients maybe uh, raising an eyebrow about my writing. But the fact of the matter is I really do try to present most of these issues even-handedly as I can because – obviously not with ha dumping hazardous waste, but with mining and with fracking and with other issues, there really are two sides to that issue. And I wanted people to be exposed to both sides. Yeah. And, and that's interesting. Speaking of what, uh, talking about writing, what you know, because you're bringing this, you know, into the, into your work here before you became a big firm environmental lawyer with everything that goes with that, <laughs> You worked from 1980 to 1983, probably as a young whippersnapper, as an assistant attorney general for the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Resources, prosecuting violations and defending permits issued by the department. Sounds a little bit like 29-year-old protagonist Mike Jacobs. Yeah. Well, just a little bit. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I learned, look, I, you know, like anybody else who has that kind of a job, whether you're an assistant uh, DA or, you know, deputy attorney general or assistant U.S. attorney, you know, those are those are sort of glory years in your life. And uh, you look back on it really fondly. It's And you also look back on the people you were in the foxhole with uh, back then. And it was certainly a, a great experience for me. And it taught me an awful lot. And it certainly taught me a lot about uh, the government's perspective in these cases. And I certainly... I was a young whippersnapper. I mean, we used to refer to ourselves as gunslingers because, you know, we would go out west in, at Western PA and, uh, you know, we were we were the ones who were out there enforcing the law. We we and the inspectors were, were doing that kind of thing. And it was it was pretty heady. And, and I, but I learned an awful lot. And, um, you know, some of that, of course, goes into uh, my main character, Mike Jacobs, uh, who is doing similar kinds of things. Yeah, I was wondering about his age because when I picked up the book and started reading it, 
you know, a little a little bit of hubris in the in, in the protagonist at the beginning. There's a scene. I'll tell you, Joe. It almost pulled me out of the book because I'm a lawyer. I knew I know how I've been being a 35 year trial lawyer. I know you don't behave in front of a judge the way he behaved in front of a judge. And I'm thinking this guy Joel Burke, he doesn't know a thing about. You know, and then you did very quickly right after that. The next page, you know, sort of had his superior tell him, well, you certainly didn't act this way, did you, in front of the judge in that particular situation? And he goes, hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I, and I, obviously I took liberties. I've had a few uh, trial lawyers like yourself and others yeah. who have read the book and who've um, reacted similarly. It, it is a novel. And right, right, um, right. If, if I were writing about the typical kind of envi environmental administrative law case that I handled for 40 years in my career, you know, people, first of all, it would be about, it wouldn't be a hundred thousand words. It would be about a million words. Right. And secondly, it wouldn't be the kind of thing that would be a page turner. It'd be the kind of thing you might read if uh, you didn't have any ambient around and you just wanted to go to sleep. So um, obviously I, I made the novel um, a little bit more action packed, a lot more action packed, I should say. I made it, um, you know, a little more interesting than what you would or ordinarily see in, the, in an environmental law courtroom, and not unlike what you see on television when you're watching a police drama. I mean, the cops don't, you know, run from one crime to the next crime. They're not constantly shooting at people and getting shot at. I mean, thank God. But um, but in the, on TV, that seems to be what's happening all the time. And mm -hmm. and similarly, in in my books, you know, I, I try to condense all of the parts that are the normal routine kinds of things. I, I, I relate to them. I, I mentioned that they, they exist. You know, you, you hear about or you see, read about Mike spending hours and hours at night, which you would know as a trial lawyer, yeah, yeah. you probably spend more time at night in your office preparing for the next day than you actually do in the courtroom or in the course of your, your days. And uh, so I, I, I try to condense all that all that realistic, boring stuff out of there. And then the other thing too is in terms of the courtroom scenes, I really did want to make the courtroom scenes as exciting as possible. Mm. And you also know that, you know, you can put witness after witness on, he's just got to, they've just got to get certain information right. uh, out. Yeah. It, it's just yeah. necessary to your case. You have to make a record and, and God forbid you're going on to an appeal. You want to make sure that that information is in the record and, and that kind of stuff. I, I just almost completely eliminated or I handle it in a word or two because yeah. people don't want to read about that kind of thing. So I, that's what I tried to do. I thought your mastery of the courtroom scenes were, were great. I, I was really entranced by the later uh, toward the end there when uh, things came to a head in the courtroom. Uh, and, and I understand what you're saying. Uh, and listeners don't, don't, don't be worried at all about, you know, whether or not uh, this little thing I was talking about, is just one of these things where, you know, the judge comes in, you'll see it when you read the first part of the book. And then the, the young trial lawyer starts berating the judge about trying to call his witness. And I'm thinking, it's probably not a good move on this part. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and he was learned, but he learned from that as he, as he went on. Uh, well, he does, way, he does get his backside handed to him later on as a result exactly, of that. Exactly. And so, so that's a good segue to Mike Jacobs and maybe we'll set up the reading here. Mike Jacobs, he's 29 years old. He works for in the, this agency called DEP, uh, uh, Department of Environmental Protection, I assume. And uh, as you say, all he wants to do is protect the environment and his neighbors from from harm. And uh, he's a young guy. He's a little bit idealistic. Uh, and we've got a reading here. Uh, it's, it's, you know, not too far into the book, but it kind of gives us a sense for the landscape and also um, a little bit about what he's doing. Anything else you want to do to set that reading up? 
Yeah, Mike Mike has been assigned to a case. He works in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And for all of your uh, listeners who are not familiar with the geography of Pennsylvania, uh, you have Philadelphia along the Delaware River. About 90 miles to the west of Philadelphia is Harrisburg, the state capital. And uh, Mike's office is in Harrisburg. And then maybe another um, 100 miles to the west of that is where a lot of the action in this story takes place. And that's the heart of, of the bituminous coal country in Pennsylvania. So he's traveling out there and he's thinking as he's driving along and things are going on um, and he's he's contemplating a lot of things. So uh, he's also anxious to get involved in this case, although uh, Mike has been given very, very definitive and clear instructions. He's going to babysit this case. And, and let me just set it up for you, because if you do a lot of trial work and civil or criminal trial work, it wouldn't be the kind of thing that would normally happen. But uh, in this case, you have the mine operator who has filed an appeal from all of the permit conditions that he didn't like. And then you've got the citizens who have filed an appeal, the neighbors who have filed an appeal from the fact that the department issued the permit. Those those put the department directly in the middle of that case. And so Mike has been told by his political bosses, he's got to babysit the case. And that means that there's a lawyer on one side, there's a lawyer on the other side. Mike is there to do something that we used to refer to, and to this day, they still refer to as defending the integrity of the department and making, so that's, that comes up over and over again, but that's why he's there is to defend the integrity of the department. And he's not there to, um, to, uh, protect the uh, permit. He's not there to protect the environment or the citizens. He's just stuck right in the middle of the case where he does not want to be. Yeah, I will say as an aside that uh, as a very young lawyer myself, I went to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania on a case. I had to go to Pittsburgh and then I flew on one of these planes from there to Harrisburg where they actually weighed you to make sure they could tell who was supposed to sit on which <laughs> side of the plane. And that, that was my first introduction. And I don't like this very much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, anytime you're ready, just take it away. All right. Mike looked at a large farm as he sped along with a white barn set back way away from the turnpike. Cows stood in a field tinted yellow, brown and gray, steam puffing from their nostrils. The previous week's light snowfall had melted and the ground was ready for more. The farm appeared serene and trouble free for a moment and not for the first time. He wished his life were less complicated. His mind drifted to a thought that he pondered regularly, the religion issue. Mike had gone in and out of observance over the years. The high point had been when he'd applied for and began attending the Jewish Theological Seminary after high school. In a sophomore year, however, he transferred to Penn State. Steve, he had said to his older brother, a conservative rabbi and his role model, I just don't feel it anymore. How would you know what I'm even talking about? He replied, he replied Mike, it happened to me once, too. Then I sat down and learned a page or two of the Talmud, and it all came back. Try it, please. Yeah, that was just not going to work for Mike. He was troubled by this, and he couldn't come up with the answer that was right for him. Eventually, Mike's thoughts returned to the Rhino mining case. He wanted to represent the department vigorously to uphold the permit against both the challenge by Renati and the challenges by the citizens group. Mike felt juiced up about his, that his opponent was Sidney Feldman, just 28 years old, Mike knew that many of his contemporaries from Vermont Law School were lucky to be writing briefs and attending depositions while Mike was dueling in Pennsylvania in court with Pennsylvania's leading environmental litigator. Roger's words played in Mike's head. I want you to babysit this case. Let Feldman and Clymer fight it out. You have to devote more time to the other cases where we don't already have capable lawyers on both sides. 
Roger had burst his balloon and made it clear that Mike was to take a secondary role, defend the integrity of the department. Mike hated that. He wanted to be in the middle of the action, fighting to protect the watershed and the neighbors. That was why he went to law school. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so we got the Rhino Mining Company, and it's run by a guy named Ernie Renati. Uh, and he's uh, represented by Sid Feldman, a lawyer from Philadelphia, who oozes power and privilege. And, um, and, and the inciting incident, you start like any good thriller. You know, we got a murder in the first scene, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and it's uh, Ernie Renati, and he's 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 pushing these neighbors around who kind of bump right up to uh, this area, this strip coal mining area. Is it true, Joel, that uh, they do uh, do some some I'm not use surface coal mining close to neighborhoods? Is is that happen? There there is a setback requirement, and uh, so long as they stay outside of the setback, uh, they but they can they can actually mine pretty close to a neighborhood. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Of course, you made it, and in this case, that they were going to had they had plans or designs for more than that. So they're trying to push the neighbors out and take advantage of them. There. Um, all right. So we got the storyline here. We got uh, Mike Jacobs. Um, you know, he's a young guy. He's trying to do the right thing. His boss is telling him, you know, you just need to babysit it. But he's got some people he meets, and he just can't help himself. And so you're having to walk this line. Did you ever have that situation? When you were working those kind of cases where you wanted to take a little bit step further than just protecting the integrity of the department? Let me say most of the time, and I've talked with many, many of my colleagues over at DEP, as we call it, and uh, they have been, uh, you know, they they really chafe at having to just sit there and and, uh, babysit the case, but they do it. I mean, if that's if that's what they're called to do, that's what they do. They don't, they try not to take a side, but unfortunately, this really doesn't come up that often. It really would only come up when you've got a permit dispute like this one, where you've got a permittee who doesn't like the conditions, and then you've got neighbors who don't like the fact that a permit's been issued. But that comes up enough. That probably comes up a number of times a year, and it, and it's the kind of thing that the lawyers really aren't happy about because they do want to take a side. So, what is the state of mining now in uh, in Pennsylvania? Uh, the state of mining is that uh, we have uh, still quite a bit of mining. And actually, I haven't had the statistics right here. Um, in just for informational purposes, uh, so far as uh, energy production is concerned, so for uh, power generation in Pennsylvania in the year 2010, 48% of all uh, electric power was generated by coal. But in 2019, that's now down to 17%. And natural gas in 2010 was 15% of electric generation and now up to 43%. So um, there's still quite a bit of coal that's mined in Pennsylvania. At this point, I think the majority of it is probably exported, both exported around the northeastern part of the United States as well as overseas. So there's still quite a bit of uh, coal mining, not as much as there used to be. It's definitely an industry that's on the way down, uh, but there is still quite a bit of coal mining. Not all of it is taken by strip mining. Uh, there's still quite a number of active underground mines in Pennsylvania, but it is a uh, much smaller industry today than it was a few years ago. Now, having worked in a big law firm yourself, uh, like I like I did, um, you've got this character in the book who's who's one of the antagonists. He's representing, you know, the Rhino Mining Company. He's got this big office in Philadelphia. He flies around on private planes. He's a little bit uh, unethical, so to speak. Did you have a little fun doing that, to writing that character? Oh, yes. That's, that, 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 uh, Sid Feldman is my 
my homage to uh, every Philadelphia lawyer I ever dealt with. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, they were talking about Philadelphia lawyers back in the uh, revolutionary time period uh, that uh, the, uh, the, the our, our nation's founding fathers would say that in Philadelphia, this is this is during the time of the writing of the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And in Philadelphia, what they do is they find a lawyer who's very, very successful. They appoint him to the position of judge and then they steal all of his clients. And that's what they were saying 250 years ago about it, about them. And uh, so I, I kind of channeled every every um, trope and every bad habit of every Philadelphia lawyer I ever knew and uh, and in writing Sid Feldman. So Sid is uh, kind of an amalgam of you know hundreds of lawyers that I've known over the course of my life. So there's there's nobody quite like Sid. He's he's unique. Yeah. Now this is your second book in the series, and you've got a third one that's going to be coming out. Is that right? Yes. The uh, the first one, as you mentioned, was on uh, uh, dumping of hazardous waste. This one's on coal mining. The third one is actually on fracking. And I have, uh, like this one and the previous one, I tried to put a lot in there about the fracking process. And, and again, trying to present it from both sides. Yeah. The nice thing is in the book is it's, while you do get an education about uh, the particular topic you're focused on, you do weave it in amongst all the thrilling activities and the, and the scenes and that kind of thing. And there are listeners, there are some very uh, neat twists at the end of this book in, in those courtroom scenes. All right, Joel, look, a couple of writing life questions before we wrap up this uh, session. You, you said that your entire career was devoted to environmental and energy law. This is on LinkedIn. But since 2018, you expanded your horizons and now you're a published novelist. Talk about what it meant to you in your life to expand your horizons this way. I mean, it's, as you know, as a writer and as a former lawyer, I mean, you, your 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 mindset is a certain thing when you're a lawyer. And <laughs> I don't know about you, but I can't begin to tell you how many times I woke up at two o'clock in the morning dreaming that I had missed a deadline <laughs> or or just in a panic because I wasn't prepared for a case that I was going to or for that matter, all those nights that I just couldn't even fall asleep because I was getting ready for a big trial and, and I went to bed late and I was getting up early and and you know what that feeling is like. And uh, and then when you're writing, it's a totally different aspect of your brain. I mean, you're still marshalling your brain, but you're not, it's, it's a very different thing altogether. And for me, it's a very enjoyable thing that I really do enjoy. Um, I enjoyed practicing law, but I enjoy this in a very, very different way. And I, and the stress of practicing law is not there. And that's, that's another great thing. That's, I can't, I can't overstate that, that the stress is significantly different. It's a different kind of stress. It's, mm. it's more inner stress. You want to, you want to write a good, uh, a good character. You want to write a good line. You want to come up with a good chapter and then a good book. And that's that's a different kind of stress altogether than, you know, having clients breathing down your neck and calling you and wondering why you haven't responded to their email in five minutes <laughs> and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I know I know what you're talking about, because I was working on a big case once and I found myself at the office uptown at 430 in the morning, you know, working on something, just couldn't sleep. And then interestingly enough, about three months ago, I was working on a novel and I, I, I woke up in the middle of the night. I just wanted to write. I came downstairs, <laughs> but it was a whole different experience, you know. Right. Whole different experience. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so, so looking back now, you've written uh, these these three, pub, the, soon to be the third published novel. Um, if you could tell your younger writing self something, Joel, that is the one who was just starting out with that first longer book that you said didn't go where you wanted it to go, and now these 
more finely tuned legal thrillers. What would you tell that younger Joel Burkett that uh, might have might have helped him? Well, the first thing I would have told him is back when you really wanted to write when you were 30, 35 years old, you should have just made the time. Now, granted, you were working ridiculous hours. I was working crazy hours, billing 2000 hours a year. You just as you know, that's just insane. And plus, there's all the other stuff that you have to do. So you're just spending all that time. I had a young family. And so when I wasn't writing, I was devoting time to my family. I, I should have found an extra 15 minutes or a half hour somewhere uh, to devote to writing. So the first thing I would have said is don't wait until you're 55 or 50 or 55 years old to start writing. You know, try and do it in your 30s so that you, you know, by the, you know, you can start actually writing those novels and putting them out when you're a lot younger. That that'd be one thing. The other thing is, um, I would tell the the uh, lawyer part of me to relax a little bit more and and not to be as tightly wound as I was. And it's easier said than done because, and as you know, as a trial lawyer, that's very very hard to do. And I tell the writer side of me to just enjoy myself and just just go with it and enjoy it. And, and I did. I mean, I, I I mean, this is, I'm so happy that I'm doing this now. Uh, I don't know what else I'd be doing. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't. I don't play golf, uh, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't be playing golf every day like some of my buddies who are now retired are doing. I, I like gardening, so I would have been doing some more gardening. But there are many, many months of the year that you really can't do a whole lot. But uh, those are some of the things I would have told my younger self. Yeah, and I, I would amend that because I used to write a little bit when I was younger and practicing law, but I would never finish it. You know, so not, not only just write it, but finish it. <laughs> do it, right. do that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, we're going to jump over to Patreon in just a second. We're going to be talking about this idea of writing a novel and the questions you get from people about it, but maybe we can just touch on one question before we go there. Um, you would get questions from your friends or your, maybe your lawyer friends, you know, they want to know how to write a book and they say to you, well, you know, this can't be that hard, can it? You know? <laughs> yes. Uh, I would. When I was able to do in-person um, uh, book signings and the like, and I would do a presentation, <clears throat> I would at least get, I'd get this question at least once every time I did one of the presentations. And that question was, um, I want to write a novel. It seems like it's an easy thing to do. Probably would take about a month or two, right? <laughs> and... <laughs> And the answer to that is, no, it's going to take a long time and it's not easy and it's very different than what you're doing now. Um, as you know, writing a novel is very, very different than writing a brief or a legal memo. And uh, it's a, it's a using the similarity is that you're using words. You put the words into sentences and you put the sentences into paragraphs. Beyond that, there's not a whole lot of similarity. <laughs> yeah. And lawyers have a bad habit of, of writing it in the passive voice too sometimes. It's a, and that's another thing you have to get your brain around when you start writing thrillers to keep it going. Well, this, this is great, Joel. Um, we're going to, we're going to jump over now listeners to our Patreon channel. That's P A T R E O N.com forward slash, Charlotte Rears podcast, but uh, you need to go check out a mid rage uh, by Joel Burkett. It's a, uh, it's uh, you know, it's, it's a really good book. I enjoyed it. It's got some, some great endorsements here for it. Uh, those last couple of scenes will have you wondering how Mike Jacobs pulled it off. Uh, that was kind of fun to, to go through. Uh, Joel, look, thanks. Thanks a lot for being on Charlotte Rears podcast. Oh, Landis, thank you for inviting me. This has been great fun. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, 
and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.